So right now, I am in a series on moral purity. And sadly, we have reached a crisis point in our nation because the home, which is the very fabric and strength of any nation, has come unraveled. We're at a crisis point as it relates to purity. And sadly, moral impurity has walked right in the front door of the church. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. For the last three weeks, Dr. Brogy has been preaching from various books in the Bible on the topic of morality and moral excellence in today's culture. Today, we will see that when a church sends mixed messages as to what is really right and wrong instead of helping our nation, we are helping to destroy it. Furthermore, we are seeing that the church has really lost its saltiness by moral compromise or an unwillingness to teach the truths of God's Word. Today's sermon is entitled, Pursuing Moral Purity. Please join us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1-8 through 8, as we begin. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. If you are new to the Bible, all the T books in the Bible are together. They're easy to keep track of because they go from long to short. The word Thessalonians is longer than the word Timothy, which is longer than the word Titus. So you have first and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, and then you have Titus, and they're adjacent to go everywhere preaching Christ, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. First Thessalonians chapter four. If you're here for the first time, we completed a couple of months ago a line by line exposition of the Epistle of James, and God willing, before winter comes in fall, we will start a new book of the Bible, a brand new book. I usually go from a New Testament to an Old Testament book. I try to teach the whole council of Scripture. And remember the early church when they started. They didn't have the first line of the New Testament. Everything that they studied when they gathered in the early years was just the Old Testament. But all the Scriptures are about Christ. So right now, I am in a series on moral purity. And sadly, we have reached a crisis point in our nation because the home, which is the very fabric and strength of any nation, has come unraveled. We're at a crisis point as it relates to purity and sadly, moral impurity has walked right in the front door of the church. And when I, of course, I use the word church, I recognize there's the true church and the false church. There's the professing church and the possessing church. There's the church that's alive and there's the church that is dead. There's the church that believes in the inerrant, infallible, eternal word of God and the church that does not. So we began this series by looking at avoiding moral failure, and we studied King David and his fall into adultery with Bathsheba. From there, we dealt with finding moral forgiveness, and we looked at the woman caught in the very act of adultery, drug into the temple precincts, and placed before the Lord Jesus. And God teaches us a lesson on forgiveness, that where there's failure in our life, we might find forgiveness. Then we dealt from Genesis 38 with reaping moral compromise as we studied the life of Judah. And we saw that he indeed reaped what he had sown. And God put two chapters side by side. Next to that, we looked at Genesis 39, 
where we studied the life of Joseph on achieving moral victory. And then if you were here in our last session together, we dealt with confronting moral perversion as we dealt with the LGBTQ, RST movement, however many letters you have in it. And if you know Bible history, and if you know secular history, then you know that a nation that has compromised itself morally is a nation that is about to implode. Are you aware of how quickly we have embraced the homosexual lifestyle? And we've seen that whenever there's heterosexual promiscuity, homosexual perversion is quickly adopted. Now, I could go through all kinds of statistical evidence. I could share studies. But let me just read one quote to make my point. Even in non-religious terms, homosexuality represents a misuse of the sexual faculty. Homosexuality is a pathetic little second-rate substitute for reality, a pitiable flight from life. And as such, homosexuality deserves fairness, compassion, understanding, and when possible, treatment. But it deserves no encouragement, no glamorization, no rationalization, no fake status as a minority, no pretense that it is anything but a pernicious sickness. Do you know where those words came from? They were written by an expert in his day. It was the cover story, 1966, of Time magazine entitled Homosexuality in America. Can you imagine the outrage if Time magazine printed words like that today? The idea that homosexuality is a fake minority, a pernicious sickness that deserves treatment? I mean, they would be there in New York City protesting with signs wanting to burn the place down. As late as 1972, the American Psychiatric Association termed, quote, homosexuality as a disorder deserving psychiatric treatment. Yet today, it is no longer the homosexual who needs treatment, rather those who speak against it. And when you study the history of nations, And again, we documented it last time from Romans chapter 1. Whenever there is heterosexual promiscuity, homosexual perversion is quickly adopted. And when that begins to become the tenor of a nation, that nation is getting ready to implode. And when the church sends a mixed message as to what is really right and wrong, instead of helping the nation, we are helping to destroy the nation. I was counseling an individual in another state. A lot of people listen to search the scriptures online, and especially in 10 other states outside of South Carolina. And a person called me. They had seen their born-again counselor in their local church and wanted to know my take. And the counselor of this Bible-believing church said this to the couple, while I don't personally agree with the way you live, they were living together, not married. That's just what your generation does, so who am I to judge? Look, I don't care what a pastor tells you. I don't care what a counselor tells you. You can change what God says in His Word about sin, but you cannot change God's Word. Jesus was very clear that we are to represent his truth, not only in what we teach, but in the way we live. 
You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown and trampled underfoot by men. So when the church has lost its saltiness by moral compromise or an unwillingness to teach what God says, then we have lost our cutting edge. So this is the sixth and final message in this series on morality. I've entitled it Pursuing Moral Purity, subtitled Who You Are When No One Else Is Looking. First Thessalonians chapter 4 If you're new here, you need to bring a Bible to church. If you don't have one, and I understand that, many don't when they come, come tonight and meet the pastor at 530, and we'll give you a brand new Bible courtesy of an anonymous family. 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning now in verse 1. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. History has demonstrated that any nation, any culture that treats sexuality lightly will teach and treat their fellow humans in a similar way, very lightly. So we have an abortion holocaust in our world. 600 million babies have been aborted worldwide, 60 million in our country, and we led the way in the technology and we sold it to nations across the world. 60 million Americans are missing, not to mention had they grown up and the children they would have. The only way we can sustain ourselves as a country is to continue to open up and let people from other nations come. We would be in deep financial trouble without opening it up to other nations. Now, we need to do it in a legal way. Our border is in a crisis. This administration seems to have no real direction as to what's right. I hope you understand that while we are to be compassionate to the alien in the land, God's Word teaches that. He also teaches very clearly that there's such a thing as borders, that God established borders. We are letting people into our nation, especially from the Islamic countries, who are someday going to walk into your neighborhood and slit one of your friend's throats. You say, that's harsh. That's the Quran, and they are taking advantage of an administration that is lax. So we have this abortion holocaust. We have the abuse of children like we've never seen before in our history, and the elderly are being ripped off. They're being denied some basic care. Just let them die. 
You say, that is happening? Yes, it is. And you're blind if you are not paying attention. But this is what happens when people treat sex lightly. They will treat their fellow human in the same way. I mean, have you ever thought about the moral implications of evolution? People who say there's no God, there's no such thing as the supernatural, so you have to come up with some other way to explain the high, highly complex creation that we live in. But when you deny God, you deify man. When you deny God, there's really no one to whom you are ultimately accountable. There's no true sense of right and wrong. And of course, when you teach that we evolve from animals, people will live like animals. And so we have the mess that we have today in the United Methodist Church, among certain Presbyterian denominations, sadly most Lutherans with the exception of one Lutheran denomination, Episcopalians, Cooperative Baptists, and on we could go where because they do not believe the Bible is the infallible, inerrant Word of God. They say it's inspired. They use the same dictionary. I mean, excuse me, they use the same words, but they use a different dictionary to define them. So you got the slick cooperative Baptists who say we believe in inerrancy, and they don't. They don't believe in the traditional historical definition. And so it is we could walk through every denomination, which I do, by the way, in my course on bibliology, if you're interested in studying that. And so we had Dr. William Craig Lane come out this week denying the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. And he said the creation story was just a poetic way of expressing God's goodness to man, but it's not history. And then you have so-called Christian apologists like Tim Keller, who says that there's contradictions and the creation story, and that it's just as plausible for someone to embrace theistic evolution as it is the creationist point of view. That's utter heresy, and it's a denial of what Jesus told us and what He taught concerning the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so again, if there's no absolutes, if the Bible can be questioned in terms of its authority, then we will no longer see it as sufficient. And if there's no real clear guidance as to what is right and what is wrong, then everything is up for grabs. This is not the first time it's happened in history. In fact, it happened a few times during Israel's history. There was a prophet by the name of Jeremiah. He wrote two books in the Bible, Jeremiah and the book of Lamentations. Of course, Lamentations follows Jeremiah. To lament means to cry. We often refer to him as the weeping prophet. And immorality and idolatry was so widespread in his day that he said the people had lost their ability to blush. And so how does a local assembly, how do you as an individual Christian make an impact in this kind of a culture? And God's way has always been the same. He takes a man, a woman, he takes a teenager, he takes uh, a young person, eight, nine, ten years old, who's willing to be distinctively different, and they shine as a bright light in the midst of the culture. Now, let me bring you into the context of our passage this morning uh, before we go through the details of chapter four. Chapters one through three, the basic thrust is doctrine. 
It's what we believe, and chapters 4 through 5 is how we behave. And by the way, that's the way many of the Pauline epistles unfold. For instance, Ephesians, two parts, 1 through 3, what we believe, 4 through 6, how we behave. Romans, 1 through 11, what we believe, 12 through 16, how we behave. So he's been unfolding doctrine here for us because he recognizes that your doctrine leads to duty, that precept leads to practice. And of course, a false practice comes from false doctrine. And so he wants us to be sound in the way that we think. And so in these eight verses, he's describing how can we be men and women of moral integrity? Three simple points in your outline. The first concerns the will of God, the will of God. Notice how verse 1 begins, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. Now, finally then, this is not a conclusion to the letter. Grammatically, it just marks a transition. He's getting into the practical aspect of what he just taught us. In light of these truths about you as a believer, here's how I want you to live. And he tells them to excel still more, which tells me because he's just affirmed them, he says, I want to tell you how to walk as you're already walking, that what he's about to say is not corrective, it's exhortive. He's already... Um, pleased with the way they're living, but he wants them to excel even more in their walk with the Lord Jesus. Now, during the time of Paul's visit to Thessalonica, and by the way, as you read the New Testament epistles, you should try to ask, where in the Acts of the Apostles do we find this particular group of people that are described? And when you read Acts 17, Paul says, um, he taught them some basic truths. And so he's going back to that. He says, you received. Do you see that ED at the end of the word received? It's a past tense. You received from us, Paul and his missionary team, about how they should live in this area. Now, that's important. You received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. Now, I have underlined here in verse 1 the word walk. The word walk is not used literally here, though sometimes it is in the New Testament of a physical walk, but it's used metaphorically. And so throughout the letters, Paul say, walk in a manner worthy of the call and so on. He's describing your lifestyle. And we use it that way, don't we? We say, well, how's his walk with the Lord? We're using it metaphorically. You receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. And by the way, that should be your goal. Maybe you have young children in the home. Maybe you have grandchildren. Your goal is not just to impart truth, but to take that truth, be it in an adult Bible fellowship, or maybe you're teaching an Awana class tonight, or maybe you have fifth grade boys in Sunday school this morning. You want to take that truth, and you want to ask, how am I going to take it and integrate it into their lifestyle? And of course, we need to lead by example. So I hope you teach in such a way that you're helping people to want to learn to please God. We have Christians today whose heads are filled with doctrine, but whose lives are really not changed. So we are to teach so as to change lives. Excel still more. Don't be stationary. One of our 81-year-old members wrote me this week and 
Chuck remarked, and I quote in his letter, as you know, the sanctification process is ongoing and lifelong. Now, he was writing me to let me know that in light of their age and other challenges, they needed to be careful, and rightly so, and they're live streaming with us, I'm sure, this morning in one of these services. But here's an 81-year-old guy saying, the sanctification process is lifelong and ongoing. I love it. He didn't quit. He hasn't quit. You keep on growing in your relationship with Jesus until he takes you up into heaven. Now, with that said, in verse 2, Paul gently reminds the church here by the, of the authority by which he taught. Look at verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. You see that word commandments? It's not the typical word translated commandment in the New Testament, ontolay. It's a specific word that is used to describe a commandment or instruction that is given from a superior person to a subordinate. And so it's a military term if, a, if a, an officer gave an enlisted man instruction, and you can translate it instruction. And some of the English texts that maybe you have in your lap render it that way. Sometimes when you're trying to do a word-for-word correspondence from the Greek to the receptor language, there's not a single word that will capture it. So he's talking about instruction, but instruction that's not optional. And so he uses the word for a commandment that what I am telling you has absolute authority um, by the way, this is the same word just used in verbal form of the Sanhedrin uses it in Acts chapter 5. Listen to these words. We gave you strict orders. Same word, just a verb. We gave you strict commandments, you could say. Not to continue preaching in his name, and yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. In other words, what Paul is saying is that what I'm about to unfold for you comes from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It comes from the commander-in-chief. And this, by the way, is very similar. He just doesn't go into the same detail that he gives in 1 Corinthians 7. If you remember in 1 Corinthians 7, 1, now concerning the things you wrote me about, and so in 7, 1 through the rest of the book, he begins to tick off one issue after another of issues they wrote Paul about, questions, and he answers them. And so one of the issues concerns singleness and about marriage and troubled marriages. And so on the one hand, he says, uh, what I'm about to tell you is not from me, it's from the Lord. That a woman should not leave her husband, but if she leaves, she's to remain single or be reconciled to her husband. And then a few verses later, he's gonna say, what I'm about to tell you now is not from the Lord, but it's from me. But I'm speaking as an apostle and with absolute authority. So Paul's dealing here with the former. He's looking at that time, probably during that three-year-plus three period when he's out in the desert after he's converted. If you remember, he's out in the desert, and he's personally instructed. He gets the same kind of seminary experience that the disciples had, just not with the living Christ physically, literally in their presence, in his presence, but from the reigning, ruling Christ. And God instructed him in a very personal way during those three years. And the Lord taught him about sexual morality. Now, I find that very interesting, that of all the subjects that Jesus addressed with this preacher, that he wanted him to know something about sexual purity. 
because God knows that a person's life can stand or fall by the way they live in this area. And so if you and I want to walk and please God, if we want to be active soldiers, if we don't want to be AWOL, so to speak, then we had better listen up because what we are saying, Paul said, is generated from the Lord himself. And by the way, that's what we do as Christians. The message we share from this book is not generated from us. It comes from the very breath of God. All scripture is God-breathed. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Specifically, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, the word sanctification is a very important word in the New Testament. In its simplest definition, it means to be set apart. And contextually, it's habitually used as someone who is set apart as holy. Uh, You may have some sanctified dishes in your home some special dishes that you don't use for ordinary everyday use, but you just take out when the guests come. Your nicest dishes, something that is set apart. On the biblical realm, the word sanctification is used of something or somebody that is set apart for a specific purpose. For instance, in the Old Testament, the vessels and the dishes that were used in the worship of God in the temple were set apart. They weren't ordinary. They were used in a very specific way for a very specific purpose. Well, under the new covenant, believers are described as sanctified, as set-apart people. And so Paul underscores this truth, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 3.17. You might want to put that out in the margin, 1 Corinthians 3.17. Let me read it to you. He describes that we, the church, are the temple of God, and he's making a contrast between believers and false teachers. He says, if anyone destroys the temple of God, he's not talking about you, you know, smoking a cigarette or Now, that's not a good thing to do. It's harmful to the body, but that's not the point of the verse. The point of the verse is these false teachers who come in with their false doctrine, and what they are doing is they are harming the church, the temple of God. If anyone destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Likewise, in 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you've been bought with a price. Therefore, you are to glorify God in your body. In other words, under the old covenant, God had a temple for his people. Under the new covenant, God has a people who are his temple. And as the temple of God, we are set apart. You know, it's not a good thing to pray, uh, Lord, we thank you that we're in your house today. This is not God's house. It's no more his house than the house I live in out in Seabrook, and that he owns it all. Now it is a special place he's given us for the people of God to meet and to gather. But you meet people today who are more concerned with the stained glass and the pews and the rugs and the way the building looks than they are with themselves. The church never once ever in all of the New Testament is ever referred to as a building. It is always referred to as the people of God. And so we as the temple are to be set apart. If you would like to listen again to today's sermon, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. Remember that you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478. And requesting program PMP 021. 
If you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally, you can do that tomorrow between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. You can listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.